Well, in the season of Lent, we're in chapters 10 through uh, 16 of Mark's Gospel. It's a series called Amazed and Afraid, the Adventure of, of Following Jesus. And we're looking at this, really this section of Mark that comprised the, the last days of Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem and his la- the last days of his life in Jerusalem. And uh, this section of, of Mark is really, as Mark tells the story, only about seven or eight days there at the end of the story. It's a journey toward a destination, a conclusion, a culmination, if you will, of, of Jesus' ministry. And it raises all sorts of questions and occasions all sorts of feelings as the disciples follow along behind Jesus and watch what happens. And so they are amazed and afraid as he is taking them through these various events of the last days. And there's a kind of puzzling or mind-stretching or confusing, fear-inducing quality to the ministry of Jesus, especially in this part of Mark's gospel. And as we read it, uh, just as the disciples experienced it, we're challenged to think about things in a new way. Last week, Jesus challenged to James and John when they come to him asking to sit at his right and his left in his kingdom. His challenge to them is to think about power in a new way where the throne of power is actually a, one who has been crucified on a, a Roman cross. And this week, the lesson continues, the kind of reshaping, the reframing of things continues as the group arrives in Jerusalem and they come to the temple. They come to the place where kings are anointed and installed but none of what they seem to have expected to happen actually happens. And so today we read this normally read Palm Sunday text as a part of this series in Mark chapter 11, but we're gonna read verses one through 14. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village ahead of you and find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away. They found the colt tied near a door outside in the street. And as they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. And then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. 
On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Let's pray. Lord, help us to hear your word to us this day and to take the encouragement and the consolation of that offering and reflect it in our lives this week. That we might know of your presence with us and that we might give witness to that presence as we reflect your light and live in that invitation to love our neighbor. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week I had the opportunity to kind of sit around out in the narthex for a while, and Bill Sharp was there and we were, we were chatting, and he said, you know, I've always wanted to ask you this, but what is it that made you want to become a minister? What is it that got you into this pastor church business? You know, how did, how did that happen? And it's a question that I get asked often, actually, the question, what made you decide to be a pastor? And it's nice to be asked, and frankly, the answer when I give it usually has changed over the years because it seems like I'm connecting with a different reality at different times in my life, and when I tell this story, it's not just a a canned story that I can kind of replay like a tape in my mind. And so I tell it to the best that I know it in the moment when it's asked, and there's therefore been a bit of a difference over the years. But this time, what I heard myself saying is, I think I really pursued seminary more than I did pursue being a pastor, and I kind of just ended up being a pastor because I went to seminary, and I went to seminary because I loved the Bible. I loved studying the Bible. I loved reading the Bible. I loved talking about the Bible with other people. I loved teaching it. And I just said, I guess I'm a pastor because pastors get to study, discuss, and teach the Bible. And so I became a preacher and teacher. I learned in the years subsequent to that that there's a lot more that goes on for a pastor than just those things. Um, Much of it, you know, I'd rather do without. (laughs) But I still get to do this thing of preaching and teaching, and that's what keeps me going. Because I love the Bible, I love reading it, I love studying it, I love talking about it, I love explaining it, and also admitting that I can't explain it. Because I have to do all of those things. Because... The Bible, as Karl Barth said, is a very strange world. He talked about the strange world of the Bible, and we all know it's strange when we read it, and I think that's why it's so intimidating. I can remember once reading a passage that my colleague was preaching on at at UPC, and and it was the story of David and Mephibosheth. See, I still can't pronounce it. And uh, he said, be sure to study, to look at this passage well before you read it in worship, because there's some hard names to pronounce here, and I thought, oh, I can pronounce this. 
the name Mephibosheth probably occurred about 10 times in this passage, and I don't think I pronounced it the same way once. And at one point, frustrated beyond belief, I looked up at the congregation and I just said, this is why people don't read the Bible. (laughs) You know, part of what keeps me coming back to the Bible is that it at times can be confounding. And frankly, at times it can be a a little weird for us to read it from our perspective because it doesn't just give answers, but more often than not, it raises questions and lots of questions. It doesn't just give me calming assurances, but at times saddles me with disturbing awarenesses. I don't just read it and teach it and dispense it as if it's some sort of little religious packet or a commodity, it's not as if I have little boxes of precious promises that I hand out each week. Because what the Bible does is that it reads us. We don't just read it and possess it. It somehow gets a hold of us. It reads us and taps into and highlights some of the best and some of the worst in us. And I cannot read it still without being a little amazed and, quite frankly, afraid of it and afraid of some of its weirdness. And there's a couple of weird things in today's text. Mark's last line at the end of his description of of this Palm Sunday procession of Jesus and his disciples as as they come into Jerusalem and as they essentially have just been through the the route of a royal procession before a king is enthroned, a king is installed as as king. And and it starts in Jericho, it moves through and past the the Mount of Olives, it moves in through the gates of Jerusalem and then finally into the temple. And all of that has been happening here in in chapters 10 and 11. And they arrive and, and Jesus is processing through the streets and People are quoting and singing a hymn based on the 118th Psalm, one of the enthronement psalms, you know, the halal, as this section of the psalms is it's called, and, and they're saying, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, Hosanna, save us, son of David. It's all stuff that gets done around the enthronement of a king. But they come into the temple And there aren't any priests waiting at the altar to anoint the new king. They come into the temple and Jesus and the disciples look around a bit. And Jesus and the disciples then leave. Kind of an anticlimax, if you will. And we we sort of don't necessarily see that. But there's all this buildup and then suddenly... It's as if Jesus looks around and kind of scrunches his shoulders and says, hey, you know what? Let's head out to Bethany and see what Martha's got cooking out there. I'm hungry. That's where we'll spend the night. And let's just, guys, let's just go have dinner. And that's what they do. No enthronement. Just this weird and kind of unexpected anti-climax to the story. Jesus looks around and they go out to Bethany. And whatever the kingdom is going to be, it's not going to be established 
there and then in the temple at that moment. It's not going to happen on that day of celebration. And the disciples, no doubt, are kind of also shrugging their shoulders. And if we expect, and saying if we expected the king to be crowned, we're the only ones who did. And so the next day comes the next weird thing. They're on their way back from Bethany, uh, back into Jerusalem, and Jesus is hungry. And in the distance, he sees this fig tree leafing out. Uh, it's spring, and the, the tree is green, and it's verdant, and it, it looks like it's productive in some way. But as he approaches the tree, he starts to look for fruit on it, and there's no fruit on it. But Mark is quick to tell us it wasn't the season for figs. That's the summer. This is the early spring. Of course it didn't have fruit on it. It's as if Mark is saying, this is weird. <laughs> Jesus is hungry. Jesus approaches the tree. Jesus is a little PO'd that doesn't have fruit on it. And he says, curse you. May you never bear fruit again. And then as we read on later in chapter 11, the disciples pass the tree on a different day and it's dead. And the tree has been cursed, and it, it's dead from the roots, it says. And you kind of read this passage and go, what? This is stupid. This is weird. This is, what is this about? Come on, Jesus. What did the tree do to you? It wasn't supposed to have fruit on it. It wasn't the time for fruit, after all. It's not the season for figs. What is this about? I love this phrase. I, I quote it all the time, and people don't know what the hell I'm talking about when I say this. But it, to me, it's just, the, it's just one of the best quotes to use when you come up against something that says, this isn't going to happen right now. It just isn't the season for it. And we're going to have to accommodate to that somehow. I love the phrase, and I think I could write a book with this title. It's just such a great description of one of the discoveries that we make over and over and over and over again in life, that it's just not the season for figs, that for everything there is a season, but sometimes we're not in that season, and so things don't happen that we want to happen. Another way to say this is what Mick Jagger wails, that you can't always get what you want. It's an obvious kind of statement. It's not the season for figs. It won't be happening, but it doesn't keep us from feeling like we want something anyway right now. For Jesus in this moment, it's not that there's just no fruit on the tree, but there's a hard truth of fruitlessness among his people as well that he is experiencing. Here they are in front of this beautiful temple, bustling with all sorts of activity, but what he sees is what he elsewhere refers to as a whitewashed tomb. What he sees is a, a place filled with money changers and salespeople and 
just people trying to make a buck off the faith, so to speak. And there's a passage in chapter 11 about him driving those people out of the temple. But the temple becomes for him like this leafy, green, vibrant tree with no fruit on it. Something gorgeous, something beautiful, something big. We'll see another passage about it later on. And on these six days, everything's just sort of slowing down as they enter Jerusalem. They've been on this rapid march through the rest of this gospel. Chapters 1 through 10, there's just, Mark uses the word immediately, 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 immediately. And it goes on and on and on and faster and faster and faster. And then they come into the temple and Jesus stops and looks around, and suddenly we've got the literary clue that things are going to start to slow down. Watch a little bit closer here. Something's happening that you don't want to miss. So it slows down, and Jesus kind of looks around, and he isn't ushered up to the altar to be anointed, but rather he goes out to Bethany to have dinner with his good friends. It's not the season for figs. And would that it would have been different. There's an angry side to grief, if you will. There's an angry side to grief and disappointment that we all experience. It's the kind of flip side of the sad lament that Jesus makes as he weeps over Jerusalem, as he sees what bankruptcy there is in this place that is supposedly the city of peace, the home of God, Zion. And he weeps and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. It's not the season for figs. And apparently... And this is what I love about this passage. It's not the season for figs. And apparently, even God doesn't always get what he wants. God grieves. God gets angry. God is vulnerable enough to have a broken heart over the brokenness of his children. And for me, this is one of the most amazing and yet also one of the most frightful things about the good news is this fact of a God who holds on and who pursues in spite of our rejections, in spite of our fruitlessness. And the word to us today is really how God invites us to act in the same way. To respond in the same way to those disappointments. Our lives are full of experiences of discovering that it's not the season for figs. Disappointments, losses, irritating awarenesses that things should be different. Hungers for things that we'll have to wait to receive. Boy, if we don't know that in this season, when else have we known it? Where we're watching a world just 
convulse over its disappointments. But how good it is to know that this same pain has passed through the heart of God. And yet he persists in his loving pursuit of us. And so the final invitation I want to leave us with today is also from Psalm 30. Right in the middle of the psalm. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his faithful ones. And give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Let's pray. Lord, help us to both face into our disappointments and experience what they bring us. And to understand that that pain has passed through your heart as well. And so equip us with what we need to give witness to and live in a reality that's bigger than our disappointment. And trust that what is not affected by that disappointment is your presence with us. And so inspire us in the confidence of that truth to live in the anticipation of the joy that comes in the morning. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.